I don't know what promises to take seriously from Musk. He seems like a bit erratic. He seems like somebody I don't fully trust. He seems like somebody, yes, everybody has biases, but he has done absolutely nothing to try to engender trust in people like me. The problem is you should not have to put your trust in any single person with something as critical or any group of people. At least he's open and brash about it rather than shadowy people we didn't really even know were having the levers of control in the back room. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for the political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Ricky, you noticed the difference in the way I said that I today? I did. Why did you emphasize the V? Well, let's go to the voicemail. Our friend from Australia has, has, has more to offer here. Oh, hi again from Australia. Um, thanks for um, answering that question. The thing I thought just after I hung up from uh, leaving the message was well, maybe it's a proper noun or like the name of a band, like the political eclectics. So maybe that was the idea that you were going for originally, which I think is what um, uh, Ricky was saying. Um, come to Australia anytime. It'd be lovely to have you. Our two things I want to thank him for the invitation to go to Australia. Uh-huh. I hear there's good surfing there. Time zone will be tricky, but if he lets me know, you know, recommendations on towns, uh-huh. you know, we just want to keep this voicemail thing going on for a while. But the second thing is maybe we should make T-shirts that say the political eclectics. Yeah, for your your secret band that you're doing on the you side. You know, we are rebranding. Uh-huh. You know, it's always, it's good revenue generator. Mm-hmm. So maybe we'll do that in the new year. Yeah, I'm not sure about the the political eclectics. I think it kind of... But I think the the is essential for what he's saying is to make yeah. it a proper noun. Okay. Have to make it the one, you know, okay. we, we own that. But, sure, I'm still very confused by this entire uh, correspondence, including the fact that I don't think we know his name. <laughs> well, okay, but, let us know your name. Yeah. We want to make this a weekly occurrence now. This is our 100th episode. I can't believe we've done 100 episodes. Uh, we want to thank our audience for being with us. And, you know, some of those listeners out there who've listened to every single episode, Hopefully, it, it you know it's been a worthwhile experience for everybody. I certainly have learned a lot, and I really enjoy interacting with our audience and providing this service. Absolutely. And just a quick announcement, uh, as we look forward towards the holidays, next week will be a little bit of a different schedule. Um, we will have an episode on Tuesday, as per usual, but then next Thursday, there will be a special episode of Regressives airing about legacy admissions. And we have our episode of the Citizen Stewart podcast coming out tonight. This is quickly becoming one of the fastest growing K-12 podcasts in the country. This episode, we share some juicy stories about Teach for America, and we debate seniority-based practices in teaching. But Ricky, before we get to the news we're planning on covering today, we woke up to some news that Sam Bankman-Fried has been arrested in the Bahamas. What is going on here? I know that we're we're just catching up. As we were sitting down, the charges were released. What do we know about what he's been charged with? Um, So, so far, we know that last night around six o'clock, he was arrested in the Bahamas by um, the police there based on a sealed indictment that was just unsealed. We haven't really had the chance to pour through that yet, literally, as we were sitting down. um, That was filed by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. We already knew that the charges were wire fraud, wire fraud conspiracy, securities fraud, securities fraud conspiracy, and money laundering. Hmm. And basically, the Bahamas police are saying these are the same laws that we have on our books. And so if the United States is saying that he committed these, it's in our interest to to arrest him. Um, so there are, there are a lot of unknowns whether he will contest his extradition. We're not sure about. 
He was scheduled to testify in Congress on Tuesday. Obviously, now he's no longer expected to do so. And the SEC- He may be testifying in a different way soon. Yeah, that's true. And the <laughs> SEC um, plans to sue SBF today. So we'll yeah. see what happens. Unbelievable. I just saw a tweet. I've seen this now a couple of times that if he is arrested, I mean, if he's uh, convicted, that they send him to this place called Butner Penitentiary in North Carolina, which is where they sent Bernie Madoff. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, my brother is a federal corrections officer at that prison. Oh, interesting. So he, they could be meeting very soon. Get the gossip from him. Yeah, Call you know, I'm going to start talking <laughs> to my brother more to find out. But obviously, very serious. We'll follow this. I think that this seemed obvious based on what we knew. Like you're moving all this money around yeah. customer funds. You're probably breaking a lot of laws. My sense is this extradition will be speedy. Mm-hmm. Bahamas is not Venezuela. This is a country with pretty strong ties to the United States through tourism and other economic activity. I think this will be pretty open shut, but that's not what we were planning on talking about today. We're gonna hit the artificial intelligence chatbots that are taking the world by storm, Uh, but we're gonna first talk about Twitter, who under the leadership of Elon Musk has released a trove of documents to a series of independent journalists. Twitter's former leadership is facing accusations of censorship. He had another round of information being released about decisions made by executives at Twitter. Those decisions include details about blocking content and users like former President Donald Trump. One of the biggest abuses of free speech by a social media giant we have seen. File the Twitter files under M for meh. And the Washington Post said there are no smoking gun here. We've known a lot of this. More Twitter files shining a light on politically motivated suppression of speech on the platform, all in the name of fighting so-called misinformation. This is what we in the cable business like to call a hot take. And it reveals Elon Musk's profound ignorance of the First Amendment. Elon Musk's free speech movement is an incredible gift to our public life. You simply cannot ignore Elon Musk. Okay, some might like to, but this guy lives on headlines. We can't tell people who we disagree with, please just be silenced. We don't want to hear you. There is no news that gives me more whiplash than Twitter. All right, well, Ricky, it seems like there are three parts to this story. The Hunter Biden laptop part of the story, mm-hmm. the shadow banning part of the story, and the uh, banning Trump from Twitter part of the story. Yeah. Where do you want to start? Well, I think we should zoom out really quickly just to say that there have been five installments so far. One literally just came out as we were researching this segment. So this is very much a developing story. But as you mentioned, this has gone all to independent journalists, Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, and Michael Schellenberger so far. There's been very disparate responses to whether this was a nothing burger, whether there was new salacious material. I think the more that comes out, the more it's impossible to ignore. Um, But I would say, at least from my vantage point, the most significant thing to me has been the shadow banning. I think that's um, a really interesting angle. Yeah, I agree. I actually think the shadow banning is where there is the most damaging evidence that what public uh, Twitter was saying publicly was different than what they were doing privately. Yeah. And most concerning to me was this testimony that that Jack Dorsey gave before Congress in which he explicitly denied it. I don't think he used the word shadow banning, but let's go to the clip. Social media is being rigged to censor conservatives. Is that true of Twitter? No. I don't know what Twitter is up to. It sure looks like to me that they're censoring people and they ought to stop it. Uh, are you censoring people? No. Twitter shadow banning prominent Republicans. Bad. Is that true? No. So it seems to me that either Jack Dorsey 
was totally inept and had no idea what was going on in his company, at which point he should have been making pretty blanket statements like this in front of Congress or yeah. he was lying. I mean, and to be clear, this is 2018. So there's a chance that, you know, things had changed in the company since then. Um, but this also kind of feeds into a larger pattern that we're seeing where major decisions are being made without him. Like my general read is that he is pretty free speech oriented. That was the whole beginning of Twitter and the whole purpose of it. But the beast kind of got away from him and he, I think, is susceptible to getting kind of moved with the ideological tides of the people working around him. We found out that a lot was happening behind he's his back. He was also running two companies. Yeah. And he would time. just like leave yeah. and do retreats and stuff. Yeah, he was like running two companies and then like doing like basically not doing any work for either company yeah. at various points. But can yeah. you explain to the audience exactly what we found because i think it's yeah. not obvious to people who are just casual listeners to this so on exactly what shadow banning evidence came out here yeah so basically there's this kind of back-facing database of users that barry weiss exposed with screenshots and in her um this was the second a series of the Twitter files. And there were different tags for notable people. Like for example, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who was a co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration, which advocated for um, more localized lockdowns specific to people at risk pretty early in the pandemic. He is also a Stanford uh, public policy, public health policy professor. So uh, a heterodox voice in terms of the COVID pandemic, but also a very credible one. Um, he was slapped with a trends blacklist, which basically meant that anything that he tweeted could not trend on Twitter. So anyone beyond who already follows him, who already is aware of his existence, wouldn't just organically be introduced to his ideas on the side. Dan Bongino, who's like a conservative commentator, Fox guy, he was on a search blacklist, so you couldn't look up his name. Um, he was also very COVID skeptical. Charlie Kirk, who um, is a kind of conservative. <laughs> yeah, what is Charlie Kirk? Yeah. Um, he started, what did he start campus reform? <laughs> Or, yeah, he's he's kind of like a an anti college activist, you know, my folk. Um, but You're, he had a, <laughs> no, I, I'm he's kidding, I'm kidding. But fellow dropout, uh, fellow yeah. dropout who um, who has some problems with higher ed, but conservative commentator. He had a do not amplify a tag on his, mm -hmm. which presumably means that like beyond his sphere as well. This isn't just like the trends blacklist, but like maybe some different right. algorithmic thing. We don't really have a ton of information on that. Um, Libs of TikTok, who was the center of a lot of scandals mm -hmm. for reposting TikToks that were controversial of like left-leaning teachers and um, typical people, was on a trends blacklist. And there was also an instruction that said, do not take action on this user without consulting with the secret site integrity policy team that was headed by um, Yul Roth and Vijaya Gotti, who were two of the higher ups that have been mm -hmm. caught up in a lot of the censorship. Yeah, the um, head of scandals. security, and it seems like the, the equivalent of the chief legal yeah. officer. Now, so, a lot of what you mentioned is after, to be clear, Dorsey's testimony and after he had stepped yes. down, because, like, you know, the, the pandemic and all that was exist. under Prague yeah. and all that. Yeah. So it, it is true. I haven't gone through the line by line to see what matches up, but there definitely is some explaining needed from Twitter on this particular oh, yeah. part of it. I mean, this is clearly like just shadow banning it yeah, as people it were like saying exactly and there was a lot of gaslighting doing. of conservatives are crazy for saying right. that shadow banning exists like so much like vanity fair for example ran the headline jack dorsey breathes breathes life into the right's favorite conspiracy which is shadow banning vox said how hysteria over twitter shadow banning let 
led to a bizarre congressional hearing, which was this one, in which um, they called it a, cons- a persistent conspiracy theory and said that the hearing was a waste of everybody's time. Um, CNN, MSNBC in March of 2019 said it was debunked. CNN in May of 2020 said Trump says right wing voices are being censored. The data says something else. The list goes on mm-hmm. and on and on of like this kind of wholesale accusation that this is a conspiracy theory with no basis but a lot of people who are major right-leaning figures on twitter were saying like my tweets are not getting the same attention as they normally would or this like all of a sudden started happening or followers are dropping off and you know it used to be like oh these crazy people think that big tech are actually paying attention to them but clearly at least in very recent history they very much were even with people who turned out to have some legitimate things to say. I mean, I would look at Jay Bhattacharya as a not a provocateur, not somebody who was just out there like throwing shade at Fauci. He was very principled in the way that he went about diverging from the status quo on COVID lockdowns. Yeah. So this I, to me is really concerning. I think it's concerning. And I think given the Twitter's lack of candor around this, I think it they we shouldn't assume the best you know among the people who are doing this but one question i have about this and this will be a consistent theme is that i have a lot of questions about these different areas is well given the fact that the the entire trove of documents has not been released to the public yet yeah was there also and then also elon musk is the one at the controls whether he's actually you know personally deciding what gets released or not is probably unlikely but he's the one making these decisions was, was there also shadow banning of left-wing figures? Now, I would be surprised if it was, but at least it's a question that yeah. has not fully been answered yet. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there were like some ultra-radical kind of accounts that were getting stifled. Um, one point of data that people are consistently pointing to is the fact that well over 99% of political donations coming from Twitter employees go to Democrats. Right. Um, it was 99.73%. So there is reason to think, considering how much we see in these Twitter files of back and forth and ad hoc decisions where they want to censor something or someone, and then yeah. they look for the reason to do so rather than using the policy as the guidance. I think that that really does open up questions about political bias in a very legitimate and way. So this is where I think where I start to depart from some of the people who uh, are more on the right and are outraged by this is like, I agree that the shadow banning thing is a problem. I also agree that having a company where 99% of the political donations go to one party definitely creates the appearance of a problem. And then if that then lines up with actual evidence of bias, then that's problematic. Far. Now, I would want to apply that same standard to the current leadership who has a CEO who has explicitly supported the GOP in multiple ways recently, including Mm -hmm. asking his many, many millions of Twitter followers to vote Republican in the midterm election, openly declaring for Ron DeSantis, you know, recently uh, tweeting, my pronouns are prosecute Fauci, somebody who criticized his former head of content moderation, um, Roth, who we just talked about, by posting a screenshot of Roth's previous political tweets and insinuating that Roth was biased. So I'm so if if Musk thinks that prior political tweets by Roth made him biased and suspect, then what are we to make of Musk who runs the company and who has been under repeated allegations since he's taken over including by the intercept of censoring left-wing content which I'm it could totally be smoke and no fire, but should we apply the same standard to him and say, "Hey, he's biased, he shouldn't be running Twitter." Well, I don't think that there's any way that you can have somebody who's not biased run any company like in this country that's not possible the problem with roth is that we have all these back channel communications where he's clearly acting as the censor and i think that if musk actually follows through and has an open algorithm as 
was one of his first promises and he makes very clear what his lines of censorship are or what his line like his policies are i have no problem with that you're not going to get someone who's not biased and he's not saying i'm not a biased person he's saying i'm not going to censor beyond he, he does go get pretty close to that he, he says things like hey the, i'm going to try to piss off the extreme left and the extreme right i haven't changed it's the democrats who change well, he can I'm piss off whoever he wants to on his own time but as the ceo of twitter i think as long as he stands by the principle of not censoring beyond what is extremely necessary like in terms of incitement or direct violence if he's open about that if he has the algorithm open i think that's as much tr transparency as you can ask for the fact that there are all these like secret back channels yeah. and these ad hoc decisions being made is the problem i mean that doesn't that's that's not to say that there might not become a problem with musk yeah. there certainly could be and that's why i think that he should have very explicit very minimal very clear outward facing policy and an open algorithm to demonstrate that shadow banning is not happening yeah and i think the other part is like i don't know what promises to take seriously from musk like for instance he said he was going to do this content he was he wasn't going to make any major content moderation decisions without impaneling this group of people who were going to he's basically going to run the decisions by and he clearly has violated that and then when people called him on violating that he made some weird answer about how the activists reneged on some promise to him i'm like that wasn't a promise between you and activists. That was a promise between you and all Twitter users, right? So he seems like a bit erratic. He seems like somebody I don't fully trust. He seems like somebody, yes, everybody has biases, but he has done absolutely nothing to try to engender trust in people like me who are like, look, I agree with you that there was bias uh, amongst the previous leadership. I agree that there's, there's bias on college campuses. I agree there's bias within corporations. I also agree there's bias in the media. And our friend Batia, who we interviewed, who wrote a whole book about bias within the media and liberal media, people like her, people like me are looking at Musk. She wrote a whole piece about it this week saying, look, I don't trust this guy either. Like he's mm -hmm. been too blatantly biased himself Yeah, here well, I too. think that the, the problem is you should not have to put your trust in any single person with something as critical or any group of people. At least he's open and, and brash about it rather than shadowy people we didn't really even know were kind of having the levers of control in the back room. But you shouldn't have to put your trust in anyone. And right. if he actually makes it open source and he makes everything extremely transparent, then he can kind of divest himself of that personal responsibility. I hope he does that. Yeah. Um, but at the very least, it doesn't take away from the fact that what he inherited yeah. was clearly deeply problematic. And I want to get to the Hunter stuff and I want to get to the Trump ban. But there's one thing you said I want to, I've been thinking about a lot because I actually don't know the answer to this is like, is it better to be biased openly and to be brazen about using certain levers of power against your enemies or is it, or is it any worse if it's behind the scenes i guess is my point and i've been thinking about another story that happened that didn't get a lot of attention while all of this was going on which is that john kelly the former chief of staff to trump came out uh recently and said that trump had been explicit in asking the irs to investigate comey the former fbi director and mccabe and it also came out simultaneously that comey and mccabe were subject to an audit that happens to 4,000 people out of 153 million taxpayers. And the the IRS is, is investigating this right now. Now, it seems initially the IRS has found no wrongdoing. I want to be clear about this, but they're still in the middle of an investigation. They've referred it to another part of the IRS. But even if there wasn't wrongdoing, the fact that Trump like so explicitly just says, yeah, investigate my political enemies, lock her up. Like to me, the fact that he's saying it out loud and that by the way, that, that's Trump, the president of the United States. This is Twitter, where with, with one exception, which I know we'll get into, the government wasn't the one asking 
for most of this. They weren't asking for the shadow bans from what I understand. They weren't asking for Hunter Biden explicitly. To, well, we don't to know. Be, yeah, well, we, have we no don't know. We that. have weekly meetings with Yul Roth and we don't know what's happening in them except for that there were election related yeah. concerns that were being talked about. And so there's a lot that we don't know still about what happened in those meetings. And we may never know because they like whatever's not in the back channels of Twitter, they can't expose at this but point I, in time. But I actually think, but part of my point is like, but we do know Trump is at, he's asking for the levers of government to be used against enemies. And we also know, like a, this is like a big part of this, this, this controversy is that these meetings were happening between the head of security at Twitter and the FBI, the DHS, and it seems like the de director of national intelligence and people are like, this seems improper. But I wanna take people back to the Republican led Senate Intelligence Committee, which released a five volume report about interference in the 2016 election. This was a committee that was headed by Richard Burr and Marco Rubio. And Marco Rubio, who said at the time, no probe into this matter has been more exhaustive. In volume two of that report, they talked about extensive Russian use of social media to harm the United States. And this is a direct quote from them. They said the committees found that the IRA, which is the internet research agency in Russia, sought to influence the 2016 U.S. presidential election by harming Hillary Clinton's chance of success in supporting Donald Trump at the direction of the Kremlin. Russia's goals were to undermine public faith in U.S. democratic process, denigrate Secretary Clinton, and harm her electability and, and potential presidency. Then they, they then go to recommendations. Recommendation number one, the committee recommends that social media companies work to facilitate greater information sharing between the public and private sector and among the social media companies themselves about malicious activity, platform vulnerabilities that are exploited to spread disinformation. And then it goes on and talks about how they're asking the social media companies to work with the government. This is a Republican committee in the U.S. Senate saying, Social media companies work with the government because we've had active threats against the United States that are ongoing. That's exactly what And also what to Twitter's make it doing. public and open. Well, we don't know exactly what Twitter's doing. I think that's a broad overstatement to say that's exactly what well, Twitter's we doing. We have no idea. Meetings, right? We know that they're having meetings. We have no idea what those meetings are. Like, for example, if the government were going and saying, you know, censor Jay Bhattacharya or, right. you know, Fauci in his back end emails to Francis Collins said we should look for like a swift takedown of, of him as a fringe epi epidemiologist when the Great Barrington Declaration came out. If somehow that ends up being a conversation in the back back room of Twitter that we don't know about, that is the government <laughs> effectively using a proxy to censor somebody's First Amendment rights but for their ends. But to be clear, like, in this particular case, we have no evidence that Twitter was doing anything other than meeting with the government in the way the government's asking, right? We there could possibly like yeah, I, we I have no idea. There, there are weekly there could be meetings, more and so we have yeah. like we there are weekly meetings, and we don't know. Yeah, and, and I, I don't think I think it's an overstatement. That in of itself doesn't seem improper. In, in its face, especially since the government Theoretically, is asking for it, well, publicly. Well, if, even if the government is asking for something publicly, it could be unconstitutional. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's constitutional. I mean, it could be, they could be using Twitter as a way to censor speech by proxy. And if that's the case, that's inappropriate. If it's Americans' First Amendment rights that are being abridged right. by proxy. And that very well could be the case. We don't know what was happening in closed door meetings. They were weekly at one point in time, which to me is concerning. It could be something like ISIS is recruiting people on Twitter and that would be an appropriate use. Theoretically, it's a, it's a, international security concern. Um, it sounds like there were election concerns, yeah. um, something about shredding ballots. I personally don't think that censoring a tweet 
about shredding ballots should be something that the FBI is concerning themselves with. I think that you have a First Amendment right to say that they're shredding ballots, whether right. or not that's true. I find that concerning. But by and, and large, I think like we shouldn't speculate too much one way or another. But just because a Republican committee suggested that the government should work with social media companies does not mean that all government work with the social media companies. It's constitutional or appropriate. Yeah, but right now there hasn't been any allegation, at least within this uh, release of documents of anything on constitutional that's happened that I've seen. No, we but, don't know yet. We, yeah. Or we may never know. But there is, I think that it's worth knowing that there were, was considerable conversation. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg brought it up on Joe Rogan just very casually. Like, yeah, we met with the FBI and stuff. And like, if they are, if this was a part of the decision to censor the Hunter Biden laptop, that would be a huge problem. Yeah, like, let's we don't talk know. about that. Yeah, and I think this is the context that I was just revealing around how people interpreted the threat to uh, the U.S. social media and election systems is in part why certain people are reacting differently to this. I think there there definitely is a lack of willingness of the left-wing media to look in the mirror and say, we made huge mistakes. I want to be clear and say, on the front end, when we talked about Hunter Biden before I said this, I think it was improper to censor this. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I'm not sure in reading this that there was too much new information that wouldn't have been presumed the first time that this came out. So I want you to convince me otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I think it's confirming a lot of what people suspected and that's worth doing, especially considering how far the mainstream media response to this story immediately diverged from the truth. I think it's yeah. worth knowing what was happening in the back end. One of the major reasons that people dismissed it at first was like, well, Twitter decided that this was not even worth sharing with one another. It right. took the New York Post social media accounts down. So it's, Which is it's of enormous If you're a Democrat or Republican, improper yeah, to absolutely. take down And it also, there's the whole conversation about like, could there potentially be an unconstitutional level of collusion? I think you put that aside because just because a private company has the right to censor it does not mean that they're beyond reproach and beyond mm -hmm. criticism. And I think no matter what your take is, if you have like a vague partiality to free speech, then right. this should enrage you. But I, I agree that I don't think this was like, there was nothing earth shattering in here, except that it's very vindicating for people like myself who work at the New York Post, who was the entire newspaper's social media account was taken down for a right. brief period of time as though it was at a very like, critical time. Yeah, right. absolutely. As if it was a purveyor of some sort of like malicious disinformation and we were all like ignorantly publishing the Russian disinformation that was just handed to us by a presidential candidate, which turned out not to be the case. But what we found out here was basically what I think the most important takeaway is, is that there was it was the hacked materials uh, policy that they said this was being censored on the basis of. And what we know now, which I think everyone kind of suspected, is that that was like an ad hoc decision mm -hmm. made of, we want to get rid of the story. The story is not good, not convenient. Maybe it is disinformation. Maybe it isn't. We don't know. What's our reason to? That gives us a little bit of a buffer room. Yeah. That's, but that's a separate conversation because they're figuring out, like they have this public facing policy of what they can censor on the basis of. And then they're like desperately searching through the language just find like how is this how can we plug this in and how can we make this make sense and it's i think it's important to note that you are an employee of the new york post yeah. so you have a lot to offer here and you talked to one of your colleagues who's been yes. reporting on this for a while yeah um i spoke to john levine who's the uh sunday politics writer for the post um he was there at the time they were remote so as much as i would love to have some like newsroom drama story yeah. it was like all back channel stuff but he made a really good analogy of like why this should be important to everyone that this threshold of what's disinformation is concerning 
regardless of what your political affiliation is. Let's rewind a bit. Let's rewind a bit to like 2016. Imagine if the Access Hollywood tape breaks, that lovely footage of Trump with Billy Bush. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is breaking. Washington Post broke that story. Twitter decides to censor the Washington Post. You can't tweet the link. You can't even send the link in a DM to your friend. You can't share the video. Facebook, same. We need to do a fact check. We have to make sure this is really Trump and not like a, a deep fake from Russia. Mm-hmm. And and can you just imagine? And you have all these you have all these canting liberals being like, well, you know, private businesses have a right to it's like get out of here. You're talking about the marketplace of ideas, the height of a presidential election. It's even if you have a technical legal right to do it where no one's going to jail, it's still just so un-American and so anti-American and so contrary to all of the spirit and principles that we're like supposed to all kind of live by here. I agree with so much of what he said in your interview with him and and the general gist that this was incredibly improper. But I think the the analogy here is. I don't think it exactly lands for me. One, because all involved in the Access Hollywood admitted that it was true. It's Trump himself, not his son. Uh, and I think it also, the context is different. Like the context of the five volume Senate intelligence report and every major intelligence committee confirming that there were active measures to subvert both our election system itself and use social media to divide Americans and that it was effective. Well, I don't think it's supposed to be like a scientific one-to-one. Yeah, the point no, being that if your standard is we can't let anything circulate until we're 100% sure that it's true, nothing will circulate. And that's not a healthy standard. And there is always a little bit of time before something is verified where it's reported and it's allegedly in every news report. And that's an important thing to to allow to circulate. Or even if something turns out not to be true, you have the right to be wrong. And I think that that's an important thing. But I think it's a good example just in terms of the importance that specific little nuggets of information in an election cycle can have. And the fact that that was taken down in a very critical time, clearly with ad hoc reasoning is super frustrating. It was, I mean, it was totally smearing of a publication. It was totally smearing of people who like just wanted to wait it out and see if it was true. And it was like, no, Russian disinformation. We can't even think about it. We can't even talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that the Streisand effect completely took place. And we now are talking about this way, way more than we would have. Like I, frankly, aside from the potential that um, that Biden might have been involved in some of Hunter's business dealings, I don't really care about Hunter Biden's personal life. I care far more about the active censorship of a story that was legitimate. Yeah, and I think... Like, I don't want to go into the Biden connection with his son because I know that's a different segment. I'm, I'm less convinced that there's anything going on there. It's And obviously Trump tried very hard to make that stick, including trying to coerce our allies in Ukraine to investigate his political enemy. And that was the subject of an impeachment. But like, I, I just, I want to take my sort of hat off here, like as a Democrat and just be like, yeah, this, this was wrong. We've talked about for a while it's wrong. This adds new layers to it. I think the big debate is how much this really changes about the underlying fact. One thing I know for certain is the the establishment media is not really doing much to to even meet us where we were before. Like it's not like I'm seeing a lot of people in my lives who are like, yeah, this Hunter Biden thing was wrong. They're still not saying that. This information yeah. is still not convincing that it was wrong. And I would just make a plea to them that even if you think that people are overplaying this, 
the fact remains that this was an improper censorship and we need to learn from that just like we learned from a lot of the problems that went the other way in 2016 in my opinion Well, Ricky, let's change course and talk about a different type of technology. Let's talk about the latest developments in the world of artificial intelligence. Today, we're going to talk about ChatGPT, a cutting-edge language model developed by the team at OpenAI. ChatGPT has been making waves in the AI community for its ability to generate human-like responses in real-time conversational settings. The technology has the potential to revolutionize the way we interact with machines and has a wide range of applications from customer service to language translations. It even just wrote that introduction for me, Ricky. That was from oh, ChatGPT. Nice. Yeah, so <laughs> that was pretty solid. Pretty you nice, didn't have yeah. to put anything in there. Like, what was the prompt? I that? said, uh, "Help me open my podcast segment about ChatGPT." And that was—that's what it gave me. That yeah. was good. Yeah. That wow, was well, that's nice, impressive. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. That that kind of explains why one million people use this tool in five days. That's crazy. And it's not yet perfect, but it is really spooking some people. And for just sure. to put a little more color. Um, to what it's capable of or not. I think some of its shortcomings too. A BBC interviewer interviewed the ChatGBT machine. Who is Krishnan Guru Murthy? Krishnan Guru Murthy is a British journalist and television presenter. Guru Murthy has been with Channel 4 News since 1998 and has presented programs for the channel, including Unreported World and The Million Pound Drop. Well, actually, you're wrong about the million pound drop because he has not presented that. I apologize if my previous response was incorrect. As a large language model trained by OpenAI, I do not have access to real-time information and my responses are based solely on the data that has been provided to me during my training. So how do I know whether what else you're saying is right or wrong? As a machine learning model, I am not capable of providing definitive answers to all questions, and the information I provide may not always be accurate or complete. Are you fair and balanced? As a machine learning model, my responses are not influenced by the personal biases of my creators. I am trained on a large dataset of text, and my responses are generated based on that data and the input I receive. Well, I just have some feedback for the opener. Number one, I, I want to start with the positives. I love that it... That it uh, just acknowledges its errors. I wish more humans did that. very apologetic. Yeah, but then it kind of makes excuses. It says, well, hey, this is just what I'm working with, which, you know, you'd want to see yeah. a little bit more accountability. But also we've talked previously about this Obama summit clip where he implores the audience to not start every sentence with as a blank, as a mm. woman, as an Indian man or whatever. Mm. And this AI just cannot stop talking about how yeah. it's AI. It's also seems very politically correct. I don't mean to cause offense. Oh, well, there's a lot more where that <laughs> came from. But as part of this activity, everybody's putting stuff into here. I saw, you know, just amazing creativity here. Somebody had it write a Kim James Bible verse style explanation of why you shouldn't put like bread and peanut butter in like a VCR machine or something. There's uh -huh. all sorts of stuff. I had it write a country music song about Kirsten Cinema this morning. Yeah. I had it write a rap song about SBF. Are you performing it? They're not great, I would say, okay. but they're but this stuff is adaptive and it's getting everybody part of what's going on is we're feeding it more information. It's learning and mm -hmm. it's getting better and better and better. If you remember the stuff we talked about the chess uh machines and AI before. Yeah. It's it's its own ability to learn from its mistakes that is actually what makes this super powerful so where it is today and where it's going to be even a month from now given all the users who are feeding it with more yeah. information and interacting with it lord knows how sophisticated this stuff is going to be yeah i think right now um it's clearly has its limitations and i think it doesn't 
it has not demonstrated to me any ability to pull something truly out of thin air and mm-hmm. be completely novel and inventive. But that's not but really few a skill. Humans can either, yeah, but but yeah. that is that tends to be what we celebrate in people right. that are creatives, and so I think that there is room for that to still be an innovative role for human beings, which sounds very. But there is one to thing say. to remember. Remember what I said about chess that yeah. the AI had gotten to the point where they could they could point out cheating by how creative the moves were. Eventually, so if if this AI for writing winds up doing the same thing, maybe today it's not super creative and inventive, but maybe very soon it will be. You know? Well, but it learns based on the the body of human knowledge that's generated. So I feel like there's still room to like. You're an optimist. I I am I am an optimist in in terms of the creative endeavor, but in terms of like practical skills and like mechanical skills, which I would say to a certain degree, writing a college or a high school English essay would be like, you're just analyzing Romeo and Juliet like every other person has done in their junior year right. and just like regurgitating stuff about lines and yeah. and vague analysis. And so I think that there is a serious question at like the lower level of creativity and input that we expect of people, particularly in terms of writing about where that takes us are students going to start like is this this the new version of spark notes or plagiarism yeah. um there was D- uh, daniel herman an english teacher wrote for the atlantic an article called the end of high school english which is a little creepy <laughs> and i think he's not totally wrong that there is this is definitely a life hack i mean it, you certainly end up not developing any of the skills that I still think are necessary to exist as a person. Um, But I think another area that potentially could uh, be ripe for some AI writing is college application essays. That's another concern that people have. I heard that you wrote one. I did. I I was playing around with it this morning. Obviously, like if it truly knows who I am and and it actually stores your interactions with it and and has kind of personal stuff. So yeah, so over time it's learning more about me but you can interact with it. So I started by just asking it to write a college application essay for me to NYU. Is it just, so you didn't even put in like anything about you. Then I started to tell it about myself. So it starts by, so I'll just read the first paragraph. As a lifelong New Yorker, I've always been drawn to the vibrant energy of New York City. From the bustling streets of Manhattan to the diverse neighborhoods of Brooklyn and Queens, the city offers a never-ending array of opportunities and experiences. It is this energy and excitement that has made me eager to attend NYU and become a part of the university's community. And then it goes through. There's a whole bunch of other stuff. I have Not to very find personal. my NYU application essay because yeah. it was like a more personal version of well, that. Well, it's just like, too Such general. a vibrant community and I'll learn so much from being immersed in it. Like I think my essay did sound like that and I did get in. So here, I'm going to take you through that first paragraph okay. after I start to give it a little bit more information. So then I'm like, all right, my name is Ravi Gupta, I tell it, right? So this is how it changes it. It basically keeps the whole thing, except it says, the bustle of Times Square to the eclectic mix of cultures and neighborhoods oh, of Chinatown eclectic. and Little is India. It listening and Little to- India, <laughs> it throws in there. So, okay. Uh, and then, so now I get it. Like it's not, it doesn't understand mm-hmm. that all the things, right? Yeah, I'm not from Little India, for those who know. But so then I was like, all right, Ravi Gupta from Staten Island, right? All right. So then it goes uh, from the iconic skyline of Manhattan to the bustling streets of Staten Island. I'm not sure people have ever described the streets of Staten Island as bustling. Later on, I think it catches up to what Staten Island truly is, and it calls it the outskirts of the city and how I've been kind of an outsider looking in and all this kind of stuff. Starts to get at what I probably would have written in that essay, but... But you yeah, need I would to say fill things great. in. You need to flush things out. Yeah. Like, there's no way that an 
any foreseeable circumstance, you're going to just completely generate your essay on yeah. AI and then Not paste yet, it in. Yeah. You might get like your format or like a yeah. way to say, like it was For pretty sure. well structured. I didn't, I was not as interactive as you. I just gave it one prompt and just saw what happened. I said- And where were you playing? Oh, I didn't, I didn't tell it where. I was just, this is my common app application. Okay. So this is going to all my schools. Um, I said, write a college application essay for a libertarian journalist with a cat. Oh. Um, and it oh. structured it nicely. <laughs> I, so I have an intro. It talks about a skill of mine, a passion of mine, and then what field I would like to go into, which is exactly how you're supposed to structure a college essay. Mm. That's pretty good. Um, my intro is, as a female libertarian journalist, I did feed it that as well. Mm. Sorry, I missed that. As a blank. It as that. a, yes. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it's only learning from our culture. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe in the power of individual liberty and free markets to create a fair and just society. Sure. Sounds like our podcast. I know, right? Um, so then it features a skill of mine. I've been a member of my school's newspaper, and I've also been an active member of my school's debate team, where I've honed my ability to think critically and to defend my beliefs in a respectful and compelling manner. True. No, oh, yeah. I didn't give it that, but it yeah. decided it for me. So it has no problem inventing it stuff does, for you Yeah, too. that's a big critique of it. But I'm debating it, it my beliefs in a respectful yeah. and compelling manner. I, I believe in free markets. It also says, in addition to my academic pursuits, I am also passionate about animal rights and welfare. As oh. a proud cat owner, I have seen firsthand the joy and companionship that pets can bring to our lives. I believe all animals deserve the right to be treated with dignity and respect. That's true. And yeah. I hope to use my writing skills to shed light on issues related to animal welfare, which I do. That, most of that is stuff I can definitely true. imagine in your writing. Now, and then it says I want to study economics and political science to help my libertarian journalism. Yeah, I think like I think where people are going to use this immediately is like I have a friend who is like writing like how do I send a certain kind of letter to my landlord or whatever. The, yeah, I think for that kind of stuff, this it's, stuff is going to be automatically helpful. useful. It is helpful. Like you sometimes need like the just general conventions of like this is how people tend to do things. Yeah, there's there's also some examples out there that are like beautiful. Like there was a parent who had it write a letter to its kid that Santa Claus isn't real. And the letter was written from Santa Claus. And here's just a quote from it. It was very, it was very well written. Your parents told you stories about me and my elves as a way to bring you joy and magic into your childhood. So it was just like this very, and the parents said that she was in tears reading this letter. It was uh -huh. like really nice. It was, it was well yeah, done. I don't know. I don't, I would be kind of peeved if I found out my mom was like giving me letters from AI. <laughs> I think this is going to be happening more and more. Love Should letters. Should we start like texting yeah. our relatives AI generated texts and see what happens? I actually, asked it to write because i have this group uh text called kibbutzniks which is all my best okay. friends and i'm like notoriously bad at texting it so i asked the ai to start writing replies that make it seem like i'm paying attention to the text but i'm okay. not is it reading the text and it scolded me it said it basically told me that's not like a good use of its time and it was like it's not ethical uh -huh. is it like, sentient right, now well, like what <laughs> i'm sorry like well, who mm -hmm. are you to tell me you know mm -hmm. So I was a little bit peeved by that, but also good to know it has some standards. It clearly doesn't have any standards for just making shit up, though. There like, was one example is... of like how many letters are in the word 19, and it, after repeated prodding, could not get it right. Really? And then it started again making excuses. I'm like, sorry to be so hard on the AI, but it just really likes to and make excuses. And it has excuses. like a kind of personality yeah. to it yeah. a little bit. It's a little creepy. But I think that like, one of the major takeaways here is that there are people saying that writing used to be the one thing of like you can you can flunk biology or or not care about your civics class right. or ignore this or that in school, but you need to learn the fundamentals of being able to write yeah. at a, at a basic level or at a decent level. And 
I think it's overblown that rating is just not a thing you need anymore. I think people are going to look at this the way they look at spreadsheets and calculators for math. Like obviously those like having spreadsheets and having calculators supercharges your ability to perform computation. Yeah. But your ability to understand the underlying mechanics of math and the theory behind math and then to combine that with human creativity, even in the world with all this supercomputing and all that, like humans have so much to offer in building sophisticated models on Excel or bring to bear their own creativity to use math to do things like build bridges and combine themselves with the computers to create great things. And so I think that'll be true even for this. Yeah. And I think a good example is you're gonna see writers now who are like, all right, I'm trying to write a scene Help me come up with a metaphor for blank. Yeah, I don't like that. That's though. inevitable though. I think it's happening I like right it. now as we I speak. don't like that though. Yeah. I feel like that's a little creepy and depressing to me. Yeah. But I think there's also a hundred percent a world where you could be like write an essay on the second act of Romeo and Juliet and yeah. like have it in very the very near future be at least a C essay that you can hand into your high but school I, English this teacher. Is, this is where I think the teachers are being a little bit alarmist over this, which is if it's just the act of assessment, there's easy ways to solve this, which is have the kids in your room, turn off the internet and have them write it on their own. Because yeah. the act of writing the essay on Romeo and Juliet isn't that you're creating some work that everybody's gonna read, it's to show that you can think. Yeah, but you also should be like applying a degree of creativity and originality. The problem is that we all read the same exact text that you can get like right. analysis on on Google. So, I mean, maybe we should, think about introducing some different varieties of text yeah, but into even our then the AI will curriculum. Catch up, but just yeah, have the kids do like, it. It's like having a math test without a no, calculator. But, but, but I do think that there is supposed to be a creative endeavor and exercise and not just like, it's not just your like fundamental analytical skills that you're supposed to be exem exemplifying. Like you're supposed to be reading something and feeling something and connecting with but the human emotion. That, but yeah. you still can do. But I don't, th I do think that there is something to the fact that if like your analysis is being made for you, if the AI already knows what most people think about the themes and aggregates it and writes it and then you just kind of fill it in and make it a little prettier. Yeah. Like it does kind of snuff out a little bit of creativity, especially for young people. I think growing up with this is different than someone like you or I who didn't now just saying like, oh, I want to write something. And so how do I structure this email or, or how, what would be the best way to do that? Like I do think it could become a crutch that fundamentally like just unplugs the process of becoming a, a writer that, and a yeah. creative thinker. And that does concern me. But I think like, and one question I have, I totally agree with that, is whether we get to the point where, like the ethics around this is gonna be really interesting. Like, is it gonna be viewed as plagiarism? And are we gonna be able to create tools that can find detect the AI it? Yeah, generated Yeah, you can text? like easily detect yeah. plagiarism. So yeah. like, can we detect it? And then what do we make of that? Because in example, like if we're thinking of calculators and spreadsheets, it's like at a certain point, like in schools, like obviously if you're using a calculator or non-calculator test, that's cheating. But in life, we don't have a such thing as cheating on math. Like it's like yeah. you use whatever tools you can bring to bear to create the bridge that you want to create. Yeah. And in many ways, if if my engineer is not using a spreadsheet or a calculator or a sophisticated computer to build that bridge, I'm going to be upset. So at a certain point, yeah. if you're a lawyer, for example, like a good example, like we think of writing just in terms of like the arts and fiction, yeah, but when so you much go to writing law school, is like writing the saps your writing ability out of you. I think what we're going to find is that these Wachtels and Sullivan and Cromwells, 10 years from now, they will all be using AI to generate briefs. But you want a human kind of set of eyes on that, which yeah, I think doesn't yeah. make the person irrelevant entirely. Like, there's also a lot of, like, will journalism now be at risk? I think a huge part of journalism is like going out on the ground or like finding a story or talking to people and engaging. And so I think, like, 
maybe some of the structuring and writing the mechanics of it might get taken or kind of swooped up by AI, but certainly like the synthesis and the exploration and finding the peg and and deciding what you want to write about. I think that sort of thing can never really, yep. maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe there is some universe where AI is like scouting the internet and finding the thing that no one's talking about and making a story, aggregating it all together. I'm not sure. Yeah. But I wonder also how much of the stuff has already been lurking in the background because we're just getting access to it now. Mm. Question is, there have been long allegations that Hollywood has been using some of the stuff for the past few years, like yeah. a movie like Red Notice, which is a movie I like on Netflix, but it feels to me, this is not an allegation, but like it feels to me like some of these things being churned out uh, by these content factories feel like the things that algorithms, whether it's AI or yeah. not, like created. The first <laughs> like, time know? that I ever had that sense that something I was reading was not written by a human being at all, period, was right after I went on Bill Maher, there were these like weird gossip sites that were like off-brand Wikipedias that like developed bios on me and I could tell it was pulled off from my LinkedIn What kind LinkedIn of gossip were they coming up with? Oh, like my net worth that is completely just a made up number was mm. one of them. My shoe size, which was weirdly right. <laughs> not oh, sure right. how. But then I have like brown eyes and I'm of mixed ethnicity. It was very confusing hmm. and like a whole mess. But reading like they, they had blocks of text around it that were completely not written by a person. Huh. And now I'm suspicious that that might have been. Well, I don't know that they weren't, but it didn't seem like they were. Should we create a lost debate AI generated publication? Sure. Yeah. Let's just send it out to people and see if they notice. Yeah, I mean, why not? All right. Well, I think that's, I, I, there's so much, this is going to be a story in our lives forever. Totally. This is the beginning of the story. It's just I, I, really creepy when we have our first like glimpses into it. Cause you know, we had, I remember being 10 and like my dad got an iPhone and that was such a cool thing. And right. like just how quickly everything changes is crazy. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Like our 200th episode will be like, this has been completely written by AI. I know that and intro was pretty good. And our voices are synthetic too. <laughs> that intro was pretty good. It's honestly better than most of my intros. So maybe AI will- Start writing your intros. Take my job. Uh-huh. Well, listeners, uh, as long as I'm in this seat and AI hasn't taken it, I just want to thank you for listening. You can uh, follow us uh, wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to us. Give us that five-star rating. We're really appreciative of you as an audience. And we'll be right back here on Thursday, same time and place. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Moyo Adeolu. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Monica Espedia. 